Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge, Season 4. I'm your host, Rich Helpy. We've got a great guest today, Stephen Hill. He knows quite a bit about election systems around the world. We're going to be talking about some of those, and in particular, Italy. Now, I know most people don't think much about Italian politics very often, but we recently had an election, and all of a sudden, the Twitter sphere and the blogosphere blew up. It was the worst thing that ever happened, according to some. What's behind that? And with us today, we've got Steve Hill to tell us about it. Welcome to the Common Bridge, Steve. Thank you, Rich. A great pleasure to be here. Steve, our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests. So maybe where'd you spend your early days and if you had any education experience and then maybe a little bit about what your career arc's been and what you're up to today. Oh, okay, sure. Um, Well, uh, in uh, 1992, I co-founded an organization called Fair Vote. Uh, That's what it's known as today. And we specialize in electoral systems um, and, you know, how they impact democracy. I mean, a lot of people don't realize you can take the same votes and you express them through different electoral systems and you come up with completely different results in terms of who gets elected. And that's kind of an eye opener for a lot of people. So I'm talking about systems like, you know, whether using a plurality system or district elections or ranked choice voting or proportional representation, those uh, different systems will give you different results. And so that's an eye opener. And I've been uh, sort of I've written seven books um, about these topics and, and more. Um, and this is just kind of, uh, you know, the beat that I've been on for now for about 30 years. Great. And what did you do before you founded Fairboat? Um, I was involved in politics, both at local and state level, um, sometimes running campaigns and, um, you know, just and, and just kind of an interested individual and in volunteering in my community. Um, the. Uh, uh, you know, professionally uh, did a lot of different things, working in the mental health system and other things until we co-founded Fairvote. And then that sort of launched the next uh, 30 years. It's been 30 years since the 1992 founding. So, Well, I think that mental health training probably prepared you well for politics. No and, doubt. and you're in San Francisco today. Have you always been a resident of the Bay Area? No, I grew up in Connecticut, um, East Coast, uh, lived there for the first uh, part of my life up through college and uh, then moved to Washington State, lived in Seattle, a little bit north of there towards the Canadian border, Bellingham, Mm -hmm. and then uh, moved to San Francisco in 1993, I think it was, um, and immediately got involved in local politics here, particularly um, working on electoral systems. And so in 1996, we had on the ballot in San Francisco a system of proportional representation, and I ran that campaign. So I not only write books and sort of put out ideas and educate about this, but I also run reforms for political campaign and ran the first successful uh, campaigns for ranked choice voting in San Francisco, Oakland, and a number of other cities, um, and uh, and also some campaigns for public financing of campaigns. So I really have been involved in the political reform world for uh, for 30 years. 
Well, we don't know exactly which way this is going to turn, but I, one thing I can tell you, almost universally, people don't believe that their elected representatives are very responsive to them, and nor are we getting the best and brightest into politics. And it doesn't seem to be getting any better. So I'm sure there's lessons to be taken away, but I, I do bring people on that have various ideas about what can be done differently kind of what happened before, what's happening now, and what might happen next. But let's go over to Italy. How the heck are they set up, and why did we get this particular outcome that we did? Yeah, I I mean, Italy is actually um, a lesson for us here in the U.S. because if we aren't careful, uh, we use some similar uh, components to our democracy that they use there. And in the last Italian election, which just happened uh, a few weeks ago, it really broke down. It, it had what I call a winner-take-all nervous breakdown. And um, and so uh, we also use winner-take-all. We've had a few nervous breakdowns. So we, we can't just roll our eyes at the Italians. Uh, we have to look at our own system, too. So what happened in Italy is that they actually have uh, two different methods they use to elect their national legislature. Um, they have uh, both uh, our, our, our district-based system, where you're voting for a district representative, But you also, as a voter, you cast a vote for a party for what's called a party list system, a national system. And um, in the in the national party list system, which which is proportional representation, it's a really good system for making sure that every party wins its fair share of seats. So if a political party gets uh, 40 percent of the popular vote, they're going to get about 40 percent of the seats. And if they get. 20% 20% of the popular vote, instead of getting nothing like you get in the U.S. system, you get about 20% of the popular seats. Uh, of, of the, uh, po- 20% of the popular vote gives you 20% of the seats. And so in that election, the, the, the party that everyone's sort of now saying, oh, my God, the fascists are back, the Brothers of Italy party, which ironically is led by a woman, <laughs> um, they got 44% of the popular vote. And with that percentage, they got about 45, 46% of the seats, which is what you'd expect. There was another, uh, there was a bunch of other parties on the left, the center left um, and, and more far left. They couldn't really get their act together to form a coalition like the brother of Italy party was able to do with other parties on the center right and the far right. And so the, the left actually got 49% of the vote, but they only got 39% of, of the seats overall. So with, with the brothers of Italy party winning 44% of the popular vote, what happened was the, the Italy combines it with this district based winner take all system, each district one at a time. And because of the distortions of that system, like we often see in the United States too, they won on 44% of the popular vote. They went overall 59% of the seats because they won 82% of those winner-take-all districts. Let me, see, with all, let me see if I can play that back to you. Just, yeah, I, yeah, it's I, probably I a little confusing, but a lot of numbers well, there. What I understood at first, I'm not sure I got this right, was you'd vote for a candidate, and let's say that you voted for Party C. That candidate was represented by Party C, but you'd also vote for a party, and let's say your favorite party was A, although you like candidate C. So the candidate would get votes, but also the parties would get a vote? Or did I get that right? No, there is a system like that. <laughs> but in their particular system, you actually had uh, two votes, one for your district representative and one for your national party list. And um, so 
So you vote for your district representative and then you vote for the second vote as well. And so they count up all the votes in that national party list. That's the that's the aggregate uh, nationwide popular vote. And you can see that in there, the Brothers of Italy won their fair share of seats, as did the left parties. But when you come to those winner take all districts, the uh, you know, that's where the Brothers of Italy uh, with 44 percent of the national vote. They were winning 82 percent of these districts. let, Let me play that back for you then. So I would go to vote and I would vote for a national candidate or a national party. So I want party A. But then in my district, I would vote for individual C. And if individual C got a plurality, they'd get the winner take all for that district. Exactly. And that's the problem is that you only needed a plurality instead of a majority. So they should have used something like ranked choice voting within those districts, because what was happening was that the vote was fracturing with lots of parties running their individual candidates. And so uh, the Brothers of Italy party, their candidates in these districts were winning with 30 percent of the vote, 32 percent, 35 percent, because all the other parties split the vote. And you had all these spoiler candidates that allowed the Brothers of Italy party to win all of these seats in the districts, even though only 44 percent of the of the country supported them. So when you add both the district seats together and these party list seats, the Brothers of Italy uh, and their coalition won 59 percent of the seats overall, even though they only had 44 percent of the popular I'm, I'm vote. And the left one, the left one, um, uh, 39 percent of the seats, even though they had uh, f- uh, 49 percent of the popular vote. So it's a huge distortion that has led to minority rule, basically. Well, there's arguments about protection of minority rights, and I don't know who the original quote was, but pure democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting to decide what to have for lunch. And, you know, there's (laughs) got to be balances and checks and balances built in, and there are differences and things to try to get broad coalitions. I don't know where the roots of this came from, but my understanding is that Since 1946, Italy has had 69 different governments. That seems to be a little wild, even by, you know, U.S. standards or by, you know, any other standard. Is that are they leading the world in the number of governments they form? If they're not leading, they're pretty close to it. Um, They, you know, they also combine this electoral system, as I've described, with a parliamentary system where, um, you know, the proportional system allows a lot of parties to run. And but as we're seeing, they're not necessarily getting their fair share of seats. And so you have a constant shifting coalitions. And and in order to have a majority of seats and then have the uh, the prime minister come from that coalition, that coalition needs to hold together. And often, and in Italy's case, uh, I mean, it's it's fairly complicated getting in the weeds of Italian politics. But a lot of it has to do with, you know, after World War II, the Italy had the largest communist party, and and so the CIA actually got very involved in Italian politics, tra- trying to prevent the the communist party in Italy from from taking control um, through elections. And so uh, they they encouraged a lot of this balkanization and fractionalization of the vote by manipulating the electoral system in a way um, to allow this huge number of parties. I mean, in Italy, you need sometimes one, two, three percent of the vote to win a seat. And other countries that use a proportional representation system like Sweden or Germany or where have you, you need like five percent or higher. And and so the lower that threshold is, the more parties you're going to have and the less uh, coherence you're going to have to your government. Italy, 
you know, because of its all sorts of things having to do with its culture, just stays with this really low threshold. And, and now is put onto this, this winner-take-all system where you need a low plurality of the vote in the districts and candidates are winning with 30, 35 percent, you know, uh, which means 65 percent of the voters voted for somebody else. So it's just kind of a messy system. It really shows the design of your democracy uh, d- does a lot uh, and you can come up with the wrong design and have a, 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 you know, a nervous breakdown, as I call it, of your political yeah, and system. I, like, I took note of uh, the party that the incoming potentially prime minister. I do want to get into that, how the prime minister is actually chosen, and I would probably not pronounce her name very well, Giorgia Meloni, that her party, the Brothers of Italy, captured 25 or 26 percent of the vote, and apparently they're still counting. But also the Brothers of Italy formed a coalition with two other parties, and that's what brought them up to the 44 percent. So how does the prime minister get assigned, and if I'm in your area of expertise, What's the difference between what an Italian prime minister versus president might do? The way it typically works at a parliamentary democracy is that the, you know, they often have coalitions that run together, that come together even before the election. And it's, it's known like, OK, the Brothers of Italy Party is part of this broader coalition, which also included Silvio Berlusconi's, Berlusconi's party, who used to be the prime minister. And um, it included... Uh, you know, the what's called the league, um, you know, and these are all right, center right, far right parties. And so they were able to come together and run together, even though they don't have a whole lot in common. It's, it's, there's a lot of question of whether this coalition will even uh, hold together. But what they do then is so the party that has the, the highest vote in the election, which in this case was the Brothers of Italy party, the president of Italy, which is mostly just a figurehead, but the president does have a few important powers. And that president designates which party and which leader of that party has the right to try and form a coalition. And so they, uh, the Brothers of Italy, um, won that right. And so that's what uh, has occurred is that they they are now are um, just they are uh, trying you know trying to form their coalition. And they'll they'll be able to whether it stays together or not is another story. And meantime, on the left. You had a bunch of left parties, but they couldn't come together in a coalition. There's a few of them that did, but others that didn't. And so the the, the vote really didn't come together in a way that would allow uh, that 49 percent, which actually was greater than the, the center right coalition's 44 percent, to have the opportunity to form a coalition. I, I, I see. So it's not like another party got 49 percent and a group got 44. Someone got 44. And I don't know what the exact numbers were. Somebody got 41 and somebody got eight or 35 and 10 and the remainder. So they were fractionalized on one side and that the right of center coalition put together 44, which dwarfed anything that could be put together on the left of center. And the only other stat that I read going into this was that the brothers of Italy went from like 4% of the vote in 18 just four years ago to 25, 26% right now. So. Right. They, I mean, actually the other partners in their, in their right coalition lost votes. Is that right? And, and they all, yeah, they all went to the brothers of Italy party. So, I mean, it's just, you know, voters who vote conservative in Italy, 
uh, they're disgusted with one of the other conservative parties, so they go to another one, you know. And so it's kind of shifting the deck chairs on the Titanic kind of thing, uh, um, you know. And the same with, with a lot of the left parties, too. It's really the coalition that is important uh, because that decides who gets to form the try to form a, a government. And before this, they had a center left government. So Italians were uh, kind of frustrated with a few things going on with their politics. You know, this was the first election since the pandemic. So this was a lot of payback. A, a lot of governments are going to see payback as a result of the pandemic. Uh, we had that in our own uh, country as well. So, you know, so now the big question is whether this center of right party really is a fascist party. And I think when you look into it further, you see it's not. They're just they're a populist party. They're loud. They're noisy. They like to say, um, you know, outrageous things and they, they like to poke their thumb in the eye of the system. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, they need the European Union, which they talked about leaving. But the European Union is they're supposed to get tens of billions of dollars from the European Union. I don't think they're going to be leaving the European Union anytime soon. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of the predictions is just headlines and, uh, you know, people kind of making a big deal out of something. Well, it remains to be seen what will happen. But uh, you know, I don't think that, and this is, you know, you see this a lot in Europe in different countries, the, the rise of the far right. And everyone says, oh, my God, it's the end of something. They're not quite sure what. And often what happens with these populist parties is because they way overestimate their actual mandate and they start doing um, excessive things. At a certain point, the voters go, oh, my God, that's not yeah. what we meant. And then they swing back to the left. So that's what you it's a pretty consistent pattern. We see it in Austria. We saw it in the Netherlands. We saw it in Germany, uh, you know, these sorts of things. And, I, we're, and Sweden is now going through a similar thing. It's um, it's just kind of part of the European policy. Yeah, and that's what made me interested in finding someone to talk about this, because, you know, I, again, I didn't give much thought to Italian elections or Italian politics. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, we got a fascist and it was all over. And I'm a little cynical when I see that because kind of, oh, fascist, that's the new racist. You know, everybody was a racist for a while. And now and then to the right. point where, OK, nobody's a racist, which neither of those are true. And now it was like all of a sudden it was a fascist. And I don't think people understand what fascism really is. But also, isn't it illegal in Italy to be a fascist? Am I correct about that? Or, or has that been since repealed? Well, you know, one person's fascist is another person's saint, I guess. So I, I don't. Uh, you know. So, Stephen, it's uh, appealing a system where you know, minority parties could get some representation, you know, throughout five to 10%. I'm thinking, you know, 10% of a third party would give you 40 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. That might make people behave a little better, I would hope. I think so. Uh, you know, a lot of people think, oh, God, the two parties we have are so terrible. Why would we want more? <laughs> but actually, but actually, it, it kind of improves the, 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 the atmosphere because it's not just you against me anymore. And I may need the votes from the supporters of other parties. So you have to be careful about your positioning. You have to be careful about your demeanor and how you treat people. Uh, I mean, not that, you know, you don't see you do see all sorts of incidents in other governments. I, I'm not going to try to make it sound like this is perfect. But, um, you know, it, generally, when you get away from this me against you type of dynamic, it, it adds something positive to the overall political culture is what has been my observation anyway. Yeah, indeed. And it seems like we have in our country, the United States, 
Uh, we have one party that's looking for ideological purity. We're going to run out all the rhinos and get rid of them and track them down and primary them to the point where they can't get elected in a general election except in gerrymandered areas. And on the other hand, we have this obsession with identity politics that has run amok and is now starting to devour its own. Neither, which is good for governing, and until we get an alternative that says, look, we're going to act like adults and try to address problems, then we're going to be stuck here. And I know yeah. that one of the things in Italy, just for example, we were talking about Italy, they're talking about immigration. You know, well, look, people have moved from continent to continent, from area to area since the beginning of humankind. And it's going to happen. We're doing it in the worst possible way now, every place that people want to come to. You know, yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry. I mean, I just, I, Go ahead. Go ahead. I just got yeah. back from Ireland and, it, you know, yeah. people left there because of the potato famine. You right. know, people move, well, people, leave, people migrate. That's what happens. Well, there, I mean, Ireland's going through a, quite a metamorphosis between Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland. And, and you know, no, Republic of Ireland is in the European Union. Northern Ireland is not because it's part of the UK. And so, you know, there's all sorts of interesting issues going on there right now. The thing I was going to say is like, if, if, to see how, these uh, issues play out in different electoral systems. You look at the issue of, of guns in the United States and our our inability to come to some sort of consensus about mm -hmm. what what kind of regulation makes sense. It's totally a, a byproduct of the winner take all uh, electoral system. And a lot of people say, oh, it's the NRA. They have so much money and they just pollute the the uh, the political process. And there's some a degree of truth to that. But what the NRA is good at and, 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 this, and the, the, the Republican Party leaders, because of how we use these one district at a time system, they can look, stand back, look at the political map and they can say, OK, it's this district over here. We know we're going to win that one because that's a heavily conservative area. So we don't have to worry about putting a lot of money there. And this district over here, we know we're not going to win that one. That's downtown Los Angeles. That's Democrats. Forget that one. So they focus on just a handful of of what's called swing districts. And, and it's all, you know, right now we can tell you who's going to win 90% of the, of the seats this, this, uh, this November. So it's just 10% approximately of seats that are, are swing districts. So you're talking about 35, maybe 40 seats that are up for grabs. And so that's where the NRA and the Republican leadership are experts at targeting their resources to the handful of battleground swing districts. So they're going to decide who has the majority after November. And, and so it's not just that they have a lot of money and, you know, they they're uninterested in um, any kind of gun control, which they aren't. But it's also because they're good at motivating the swing voters, the undecided voters in these swing districts. A lot of these swing districts tend to be suburbs. Some of them are, are rural districts. And so these are people that care strongly about the gun issue more than they care about all the other issues, climate change or health care or anything. So they, you know, they just say, look, you can do whatever you want. Just don't take away my gun. And they will vote on that one issue. And so the NRA is really good at mobilizing these people because of our winner take all system where they can mobilize them in these handful of battleground districts and battleground states on the presidential election. You know, most presidential elections come down to four, five, six, maybe at most 10 states. All the others is solidly Democrat like California, solidly Republican um, uh, like like Idaho or, or, you know, or Utah. And so it, this is just the the uh, geographic landscape of our system that lends itself to so much manipulation by well-organized uh, interests like 
the NRA and others that are going after these issues. I concur. And guns is a policy very close to me. I've actually proposed a system called graduated licensing. It comports with Second Amendment rights, and it keeps the firearms out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them. It back-tested, would have stopped most of the mass shootings, yet we've got really one side that almost says take away all the guns, and the other one that says equally crazy things like, hey, we're not even going to do a check or make sure somebody needs a permit before they conceal carry. There's so much opportunity to do the sensible thing in the middle. And Rich, and, the, and, and if you look at the polls, the public is in the middle. That's the, exactly. I, that's, that's I, the I, real I, shame of the whole thing is like I, I, the public I, I, sentiment is there. And the political system, this winner take all political system is simply not responding. And similarly, a great parallel is the whole matter around abortion and that the public is pretty much coalesced in the middle around what the right way to approach that is. But here again, we go on opposite poles. And in fact, in my home state of Michigan, there we have a proposal post row that it would reinstate most abortion law as if Roe was still in place. Yet our governor is running as if that proposal is not on the ballot. Make, it makes no sense at all that that's become a partisan thing when it's going to be handled by referendum in this state, at least at that level. But most people are kind of in the middle, and you know what the science and the data is there, but you can't get people off the polls. And, well, and, and, and again, it's these wedge issues are where uh, these well-organized, deep-pocketed interests are really uh, clever at um, there's a concept in our system. It's called intensity versus preference. You can poll people on a whole bunch of things and they'll give you their answers and you can aggregate the polls and say, oh, the American public believes this American public believes that. But the real question when it comes to an election is what will motivate them to vote and what will they vote uh, on? And uh, there was uh, used to be an NRA uh, uh, board member, Grover Nordquist. And he said, you know, we, we don't care what the public thinks. We want to know what's going to motivate them to vote. And uh, and we know that, you know, certain issues will mobilize voters in these swing districts. Uh, you know, one political cult consultant said a swing voter. Oh, that's someone who uh, knows the least about politics. They're um, they're the least interested. And if you don't catch them in eight seconds with your sound bites that that uh, grab and, and shake them by the collar, you've lost them. So, I mean, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but when you think about what our system boils down to, it's a handful of swing voters and a handful of swing, dis swing districts, and in the presidential election, a handful of swing states. Those are the voters that decide our elections, decide majorities, all these things. And so, you know, some people criticize proportional representation. They say, oh, it leads to extreme parties in Italy and Israel and these sorts of things. And they don't realize that in our own system, the most extreme voters and sometimes the most undecided, un uninformed voters are the ones that are deciding who wins the election. So, you know, it's just uh, something needs to change in our political system, I think, going forward. Uh, and that's why I've been involved in things like ranked choice voting and, and trying to get other electoral methods used in the United States. We've seen this throughout this experiment in self-government in the American Revolution times. We had a third of the people loyal to the crown, a third of the people that were patriots and revolutionaries and wanted to establish independence, and a third of the people for something that's important that were really indifferent or uninvolved. But I think today, I think there's a vast agreement that we need to do a better job 
with getting people in with the proper motivation so that they do act better. Stephen, you've been great and very generous with your time and patient as we walk through this complicated topic. We started with Italy. Is there anything you want to say about Italy to wrap up? And on related topics, anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to comment on? Well, Italy is going to be a work in progress. We'll see how it goes. Um, You know, I I think it'll probably uh, work out better than a lot of people were saying initially. Um, But certainly Italy has its challenges. Um, And, you know, and and here in the U.S., I I agree with what you were saying. Um, You know, we really need to figure out how we're going to do things better. I mean, if you a lot of people like to go back to what the founders and framers did. And, you know, there's they they sort of uh, go back to uh, originalism, as it's called. And yet, if you look at the founders, they were making up whole cloth, a new political system. They didn't stay with what was done before. Right. I mean, they were very innovative. And so we need to recapture not what the founders put on paper back then. We need to recapture that spirit of innovation that they had and bring that to the current day challenges of representation in a multiracial multi-everything society. Uh, I mean, the, the, the America in 1790 was a very different place than it is today. And so we need uh, methods that, that are going to allow that, that diversity to be a strength of our nation instead of, you know, people fighting over this rare commodity called representation. You know, we, it's possible that we can have a system where everybody, no matter where they live, has a representative. And, uh, you know, so other countries do have that. Sweden, Germany, um, others have methods that I think we can not copy, but learn from and figure out. New Zealand has a really interesting system. Again, this mixed member system, as it's called, with district representatives and uh, uh, um, national uh, proportional representation. Australia has an interesting system. So we can learn a lot. And we are starting to experiment more with ranked choice voting. And Alaska is about to use ranked choice voting for its elections. Maine is going to for its state elections. So there's more movement on this front than ever before. But we're a big country. It's going to take a while. So I I hope that we keep with that spirit of innovation because I think it's exciting myself. Well, I hear your enthusiasm and I appreciate you taking the time to share it. Hopefully you can come back. We'll talk more about this. We've been talking today with Stephen Hill, expert on elections, who for a long time has been committed to changes in the electoral system. Please look up some of his books, his articles, and of course, join us on The Common Bridge. And so with our guest, Steve Hill, this is your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app, where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.